Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that You have implanted that Word in Your people. And Lord, as that Word is preached and declared to Your people, may Your Spirit bring life where there is death. May it bring repentance where there is sin. Lord, may it bring comfort where there is pain and strength where there is weakness. Lord, we ask this in confidence, knowing that Your Word is full of power and always accomplishes Your desires. It's in the name of Christ we ask. Amen. It's good to be, it's good to be back with you uh, this week. I was glad that uh, Pastor Matt, who replaced me at Riverview, replaced me last Sunday, on Saturday night I sent him a text message and I said, good luck tomorrow, don't mess up. He, uh, he appreciated the, uh, the gesture. So I heard he didn't mess up, and you guys all came back, so that's great. And as we look at Colossians 1, you know, and we start this new series, I want you to think a little bit about the idea of power. The pursuit of power has ruined the lives of many individuals, uh, many communities, many nations. And the, the reason for that is, to some extent, we all want power. We want the power to do whatever it is we want to do. And pre- people, especially today, are prone to justify any action they do as long as it gives them the result that they wanted. This action was good, and how do I know that it was good? Is because it worked the way I wanted it to work. And the truth of the matter is, is that most people who desire power a lot are the people who should least have it. If you think you have the right to power, you probably should be kept from it. Power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And we should all begin knowing that within each and every one of our hearts is this little tyrant that if excused in the right way and if fed in the right way will become an actual tyrant. You can look at the, the evil rulers of our day or you can look at it throughout history and you say, man, that guy was bad. Just imagine what you would have been like in the same situation. Because within each and every one of us is a desire to be our own God. And that is what a tyrant is. Someone who fancies himself or herself as a God. And that can be in the governmental sphere. That can be in your family. That can be in a business. I'm sure you've encountered petty tyrants throughout your life in many different ways. And for many today, especially uh, those who, ex- who embrace uh, what is often called critical theory or what I like to call late-stage postmodernism, power is all there really is. So you wonder why people act the way that they do. They've been taught that there is no God above. That means there is no right and wrong. That means any claim to any type of right and wrong is just an, an attempt at having power. And if you believe that power, power is all that there is, then you will stop at nothing to get the power Uh, that you want. And if you understand that, you will understand a lot of what you are seeing happening at just about every level of society. In such a world, anything goes. And we must not, we must not think that the church is immune to that. We don't talk about power in the church a lot, but it's generally called success or church church growth. We platform those, those pastors who can put butts in the seats. And whenever a group of pastors get in a room together, we, we talk about how big is your church? 
How many baptisms did you have last year? Now, on the one hand, there's nothing wrong with a number. There's nothing wrong with wanting to grow. There's nothing wrong with having lots of people at your church. But the problem is, is when that becomes the primary goal, compromise always, always follows. And it is in the, seek of, the seeking of this success and prestige that I fear has weakened the American church to the nth degree. Uh, it grieves me as I drive around town and I see all these churches. And I see all these churches and know that the, the millions of people sitting in church pews this morning, knowing that they're not hearing the Word of God preached. And if, if all the church buildings in this nation were actually doing what God has encouraged them to do, this place would look a lot different. When we had uh, Daryl Harrison and Virgil Walker here in February, they were asked on a couple occasions, what's the biggest problem in evangelicalism? And their answer surprised me, but they didn't flinch. They said, the problem is pragmatism. The problem is pragmatism, and pragmatism is whatever works is what we're going to do. And I can tell you that that is pushed on pastors in a million, million different ways. You're a good pastor if it works. We do something based upon what we think will get us what we want, which is generally a church growth. And so, as we celebrate in Easter, the resurrection of God the Son, churches bring out churros and llamas to get people to come. I just want you to think about that for a second. This is the greatest day in world history for Christians. And we trivialize it. Because, well, it works and we want to get people in so we can have a big Easter service. And so we have comedians in the pulpit instead of prophets. We have light shows instead of the light of the word. We have personal stories instead of the gospel preached and applied. And for this, we should weep. And we wonder why so many children who grow up in the church don't know the first thing about Christianity or the Bible. It's because we, we like pragmatism, we don't like the Word. And the irony here is these cheap gimmicks, they work for now. Right? If we wanted to, Christ Bible Church could do a lot of these gimmicks and we could fill this place with people. Right? There's, there's manuals that will tell you exactly, step by step, how to do this. And it will work for one generation. And then you wonder why the next generation thinks, why would I go to church? And slowly but surely through pragmatism, the church drinks poison and kills herself. And it's here at the opening of Colossians that Paul gives us a very different vision of power and a very different vision of what success looks like in the church. And it is all rooted in the Word of God. So much so that I can say that as churches neglect the Word of God, they may experience short-term success, they may build 15 campuses, but they're actually committing suicide because they're cutting themselves off from the fountain of life. Success is found in the Word of God, and the Word of God is the most powerful thing in this world. And so in these eight verses, I want us to see the power of the Word of God, and I want us to see it in four ways. One, it defines and imparts virtues. Two, it changes lives. Three, it changes the world. And four, it centers on the person of Jesus Christ. So let's, let's walk through those. First, through the Word of God, we have 
Faith, love, and hope. Faith, love, and hope. This is the Pauline triad, the three virtues of the Christian faith that Paul sprinkles into just about every one of his letters. And in these, we have a summary of what is the basics of the Christian life. They are virtues. That is a word that um, you don't really hear very much anymore. In his book, Losing Our Virtue, uh, David Wells explores why we don't talk about virtues anymore and how the word virtue in our vocabulary has been replaced with the word values. And this is a prevalent shift. It's not not non-important, but we rarely notice it. Levi, why is, that a, why is that a big deal? Well, when we adv- advocate for things like personal values or family values, um, and we hear that in the church, we hear it in politics, we hear it throughout society, these are my values. Some churches even advertise their values. You can have your four G's as a church. These are our four G's. These are who we are. These are our core values. The problem is rather simple. Something is valuable because I determine that it's valuable. These are my personal values. Your values might be different, but these are are my values. And one church may have one set of values and another church another set of values. It's all really relativistic. It is we get to determine what is valuable. That's the point that Wells makes. Virtues, what older generations talked about, had to align with an external standard. Something is a virtue because there's a standard out there that determines that it is virtuous. Values are valuable because each individual or each church gets to determine their own values. And so a society which turns inward makes everything about values. But Scripture doesn't. Scripture is much closer to this idea of virtues. And the Christian life, Paul says again and again, is marked by these three core virtues. Faith, hope, and love. And in Colossians 1, the emphasis here is on hope. And if you're thinking about Paul's other letters in Corinthians, the emphasis is on love. You can all think of 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 13. But the focus here in Colossians is on hope. Look at what Paul writes. Since we have heard of your faith in Christ and the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Faith in Jesus, love for the saints, and all of that is rooted on because of the hope stored up for you in heaven. Why do you have this faith? Why do you have this love? Because there is a hope stored for you in heaven. These are the virtues of the Christian religion. And Paul points out that our faith and hope are inexplicably or inseparably motivated and grounded in our eschatological hope. What does that mean? Eschatological just is a fancy word for end times. It's our final hope. The hope that has been stored up for us by Christ in heaven is what roots us in our faith and motivates us to love in this life. And I want to dive a little bit deeper into this because we can throw around words like faith, love, and hope, but if we don't define them, you're not going to really know what they are anyways because... For each one of those three, there are false definitions out there. The Bible defines for us what is true faith, what is true love, and what is true hope. So what what is faith? Biblically speaking, we see two kinds of faith in Scripture. 
There's a false faith and a saving faith. Specifically, if you walk throughout John's gospel, uh, John talks about this fake faith that the crowd has all the time in response to Jesus, and then they walk away because he says something they don't like, and then they, this crowd says, said to have faith again, and then they walk away because Jesus does something that they don't like. And so Scripture lays out for us here this reality that everyone who's ever existed has faith in something. You cannot live in this world without placing your faith in something. To put it another way, there's no such thing as a man of faith versus a man of reason or a man of science. Everybody places faith in something to start. Even the man of science places his faith in the rationality of humanity. How did humanity get rational? We don't know, but we have to believe that if we want to believe in anything else. With no creator and no designer, the human rationality or reason just poof, popped out of the fire like the calf did, according to Aaron on Mount Sinai. Just poof, it just showed up. Does that make sense? But what is in view here is true faith. And true faith is always in Scripture directed to God through the Son. True faith always comes through Christ alone. And such a faith is a supernatural act that comes by grace alone. God's Spirit, as Jesus tells us in John 3, imparts life however he wants to do it. It is not done by the will of man. That all people, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, were dead in their trespasses in sin. But upon hearing the word of God preached, the Spirit imparts life. And through imparting life, imparts faith. You do the believing, but you do the believing because the Spirit has given you life, caused you to be born again. And a true faith is always, always Spirit-given and directed through the Son. There is only one Christ. And so this faith is the allegiance and reorientation of a believer's life as they throw themselves upon Christ. And everything starts to change. They confess Him to be their Savior and to be their Lord. That is faith. What is love? How much time do I have? The slogan of our day outside of the church is love is love. There are many competing definitions for what, what love is. And as catchy as the slogan is, love is love, such a statement is both redundant and true. Of course, love is love. It's a definitional reality. A dog is a dog. An apple is an apple. A woman is a... A woman. But in our day, love has been reduced to a formless kind of sentimentality. If you desire something... That's what love is. Love is that I, I, I want something. But the Bible has a different word for some desires. It's called lust. You can have desires that are not love. Desires that are contrary uh, to love. So not all romantic desires are created equal. Some are righteous. Others are wicked. This is not, uh, as they say, rocket surgery. It's not that hard to figure out. At its most basic Love is righteous desire. Love is desiring good. All desires are not created the same. Love is desiring what is good and for the good of others. In 1 John 1.4, we read that we love because God loved us first and that God is love. 
If you want to know what love is, you need to know the God who is love. And in 1 John 1, we also read that that God who is love, same book, is light. Light is a symbol for moral purity and righteousness. Love is holy. If it's not holy, it's not really love. It's a very basic concept in Scripture. And that type of love is to mark the Christian life. Love of God and love of neighbor. Seeking their good according to the standards of God. And finally, the third virtue, hope. It is a hope in the promises of God as they center on the work of Christ. Through his work, our promises, we read here, are secured and stored up for his people in heaven. Now, I want to speak really plainly here. Those promises, that inheritance, does not stay in heaven forever. It's stored up in heaven, and that will eventually come to earth. Now, theologians will debate about the specifics of how the kingdom is going to come to this earth. We can avoid that for the moment. But the promise here is that that hope is stored there, but we pray as the Lord's Prayer says that that kingdom would come to earth. That kingdom would, or that God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. When the fall happened, heaven and earth which were united, God dwelt with man, were ripped apart. When Christ returns, Revelation 21 and 22, heaven and earth are reunited. To put it plainly, your hope is not that one day you will be this disembodied spirit forever, eternally. Right? It's that you will be resurrected with a physical body. You will live in a remade physical creation that is better even than the Garden of Eden. That is the hope that is secured for you. The hope of the new creation. And so, as Christians... Our hope is fixed there to our Savior who sits at the right hand of the Father, having secured the kingdom and awaiting his return. And that motivates both our faith and our love. And we should note that that motivates our faith and our love in this life. It's not a call to sit on your couch and just wait for it all to come. It's that as you walk in this life, you look forward and are motivated by that coming kingdom. And so the Word of God gives us the definition of what faith is, the definition of what love is, the definition of what hope is, and then it infuses us with that. And that leads us to our second point. The power of the Word is seen in that the Word changes lives. There's an old, an old debate as to whether people can ever really change. Sometimes you hear it said, you know, people don't change. It never happens. And it's a, it's, hard. it's a hard discussion because change is difficult. It's a very slow process. It's a, it's a very deliberate process made up of millions of little decisions and little hard conversations you have in your own head before you choose to act. And there is a sense in which people can change. And I want to say this very carefully. They can even change without being saved. Why? Because they're made in the image of God. They're moral creatures who can do things. You can see somebody who is an alcoholic who becomes not an alcoholic without knowing Jesus. Change can happen because people are made in the image of God. And yet, the most fundamental and important change that happens is utterly impossible without the saving work of God. You were dead in your trespasses and your sins. You had a heart of stone. 
You can't rip out that heart of stone on your own and put a heart of flesh in. You can't tell yourself, Lazarus can't sit in the tomb and say, rise up, and then rise up. Jesus had to come do that for him. In the same way, you can't impart new life. God has to do that. And if he doesn't do that, then the change won't happen. But the power of God is revealed, even in this very room, because God transforms people from the inside out. Sitting in this room, every single person who believes in Jesus is a testimony to the power of God. That change has happened. So Paul writes this, beginning in verse 5. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. The word of truth, the gospel, changes people. And you hear it, and you understand it, and it has the power to utterly remake you into someone different. And the more you understand it, the more you apply it to yourself, the more you repent and to believe, the more you change. Yeah, I know, it's, it's sad. I get it. We were talking about this last night. Right? It is a joy to have children in the service. Right? It is a joy to have kids and living with four crazy kids, I I know that sometimes it just doesn't go the way we want it to go. But it is a joy to hear them cry. i got to get back on point, though. So in in the Word of God, we have the most powerful thing in the world. And this is what drives me nuts about churches that neglect it. You can't change and bring life to people through programs. You can use programs that are centered on the Word, and the Word can change people, but you can't do it. Like The longer I'm in ministry, the more I realize I can't change people. Only God's Word can do that. Only He has the power to change things. And the good news is, is that we are surrounded, and we take it for granted, we are surrounded by testimonies to the power of God. And all these people sitting around you are testimonies to the power of the Word of God preached. You are the evidence that God is still active in this world. Your testimony, whether it be as simple as that you grew up in a Christian home and your mom and your dad faithfully taught you the word of God, is a testimony to the power of the gospel. We love the dramatic conversion stories. We love the the conversion stories in scripture of of Peter being called to leave his his nets behind really twice. both The first time and then after he denied Jesus. Or Paul on the road to Damascus. You're like, wow, there's the power of God. Or you think about modern examples like Chuck Colson in, in prison, right? being saved. I think about being reminded uh, of this this last week of my own, my own dad's testimony, being arrested for the third time, being charged with his third felony. And some no-name guy walks into the prison cell and says, do you want to go to church? And he hears the gospel. And he repents and he believes. And then he meets my mom and now I'm a pastor. How does that happen? That story's multiplied over and over and over and over again. How does it happen? Because God's word is powerful. God's word does what no government program can do. It gives life. And in every generation, God takes some of the worst sinners and he turns them to saints. And I want you to hear this. If you don't have a cool testimony like that, 
God's power in your life is no less. You are just as dead in your sins. And if the Spirit did not fall upon you, you would not be saved. And if that is not enough, God not only saves you, but Scripture says He then begins a work in you by His Spirit, by His Word, and by His people to transform you by one degree day after day. The greatest miracle in your life might not be that you're saved, but that God takes people who are now sinner saints, have an old nature and new nature, keeps you in a sinful world, and he keeps you throughout that entire time and even grows you more into his image. That's the power of the word. The next thing we see about the power of the the word is that it changes not just individuals, but it changes the world. This is an important uh, note hidden in these, these opening verses. The word of God is active throughout the whole world. Look again at verses 5 and 6. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing. This is about 30 years after Pentecost. And Paul writes that right now, 30 years later, the word of God is bearing fruit throughout the entire world. He's he's speaking primarily about the Roman Empire. So in Jerusalem, Samaria, Syria, Asia Asia Minor, North Africa, and even Persia, the church is spreading 30 years in throughout the whole world. And we should not be surprised by that. It is like Christ said, the kingdom is like a mustard seed. And as it grows, it grows into the biggest plant in the garden. It is like that little bit of leaven in the loaf that is working itself throughout uh, the entire world world. I was thinking about this as we were singing, singing songs this morning. If the Apostle Paul were here with us today and he saw how great the church was, what would he say? Right? Like 30 years later, he says this to the church in Colossae, and the church in comparison then versus now is tiny. It's working its way throughout the whole world. Well, now literally we have over a billion people on every continent who follow, or at least claim to follow, Christ. So the gospel continues to grow and spread, and its fruit, though it is often despised, continues to grow and spread. And I'll put forward this to you. And if you were to study, with any shred of honesty, if you were to study world history, you would have to admit at least two things to me. The first is this. Christianity reshaped and changed the world. You, can't, you just can't deny it. As Christianity spread through the Middle East, as it slowly took over the Roman Empire, and then spread throughout Europe and to the New World, it changed everything. If you exclude Judaism from this equation, all the world religions before Christianity were in essence the same thing. Rome could conquer all the tribes wherever it went, and they could assimilate their gods into its pantheon, because in its base level, all of those religions were exactly the same but they just couldn't get along with Christians and Jews because their religion was fundamentally different. And so Christianity eventually conquered Rome, not by the sword, but by, through the preaching of the word. And it went then to the pagan nations, including all of our ancestors, whether those be in Africa or those be in Northern Europe. They were all pagans and savages. And God 
uh, God's word was preached and people repented and believed. And the fundamental difference between this religion and that, besides it being true, is that it didn't unite nature and God. That God was different than nature. He was separate in some way from nature. And all of the good blessings that we've inherited in the West are a direct result and a direct fruit of your Protestant Christian forefathers. If you deny that, you're just not being honest about world history. The leaven worked itself through the loaf, and while there were still plenty of sin present in those civilizations, and ours today, there is much fruit, and you benefit from that fruit still today. For example, in the Middle Ages, Christians founded the university system. The modern university started in the Middle Ages, and they called it a university. Why? Because they wanted to study all the disciplines under a universal. There's one universal. That universal was the queen of the sciences, theology. Study of the Christian God. And through that came the scientific revolution, came breakthroughs in political freedom, in morality, And you sit as inheritors of that heritage. And many hate it today, not because they hate the freedom, not because they hate the science, not because they hate the technology, but because ultimately they hate the God behind it. And they want to go back to the darkness of paganism. And you and I, though, should not be ashamed of our Christian heritage. And we should work to preserve it. The Word of God has changed the world That's an objective historical reality and it will continue to change the world because it has power. As Jordan Peterson recently said, the Bible is the preconceived necessity for truth to exist. It's the meta-truth. You can't even talk about truth without scripture. And whether I'm not convinced yet that Jordan Peterson is a Christian or not, it's not up to me. It doesn't matter if I'm convinced. But he's right. He's recognizing what many of our Protestant forefathers recognize, that if you want to have truth in any area of life, you need scripture. You need a foundation for it. This is the power of the word of God. And so these little tastes of advancement that we see throughout world history are little tastes of the coming of the kingdom, the hope that is laid up for you in heaven. It is Christ's kingdom invading this world. This is why Paul A few verses down in verse 20, we'll write this. And through him, that is through Christ, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. That Christ's work was designed to reconcile everything in heaven and on earth by the blood of his cross. And if you take a step back and look at world history, you can say, that's been happening. And it's still happening. When I was down at graduation, we were talking about this, that we, the Northern Europe had the Protestant Reformation starting in the 1500s, and that as Christianity is spreading through uh, Africa and Asia, that they haven't had their Reformation yet, but it's going to come, and it might, it might cast a massive shadow and make uh, the Reformation of our forefathers look tame, but it's going to come because the Word of God works, and it spreads. 
And so we see glimpses of that victory every time the truth is declared, every time a sinner repents and believes, every time a family is reconciled through the gospel by the blood of Christ, you see glimpses of that hope stored up for you in heaven. The power of God is evident as the word is preached and people and families and even societies are changed for the better. Finally, the word of God centers on the word incarnate. That is Jesus Christ. That's the last point I want to leave you with. I hope you've seen this as we walked through Genesis and then we walked through Ecclesiastes. And as if you were here for our Sunday schools when Dr. Kennedy was walking through the entire storyline of Scripture, that the Word of God centers on Jesus Christ. It's all ultimately about Him. It's no coincidence that the Word, Word, is used in Scripture to describe God's creative work. He speaks And out of nothing comes everything. It's also used to describe the scriptures. It's God's word written down. And it's also used to describe the second person of the Trinity. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. And the word took on flesh. God reveals himself through the written word and through the incarnated word. So much so that in Christ we see the image of the invisible God. And in Scripture, all of it testifies to that incarnated Word. Jesus says in the Gospels that He came to fulfill the law and the prophets. He also says in the Gospel of John that you, He says to the Jews, you study the Scriptures because in them you think you have life, but they testify about Me. Why do they have life? Because they're about Me. On the road to Emmaus, He walks with His disciples and He starts with Moses and He works Himself them through the entire Old Testament. He says, this is about me. The scriptures center on me. So he's either right or he is really full of himself. You can't can't say that without either being insane or who he says he is. And the focus of Colossians 1-8 through is Christ. The word testifies about him. The focus of the entire book of Colossians is Christ. This is one of the most deep Christological books in the Bible. The focus of Scripture is Christ. Creation, fall, redemption, and then recreation all hinge upon Him. The focus of the entire universe is Christ. We're going to get there in a couple weeks. All things were created by Him and for Him and through Him. And note the word for Him. They all exist for Christ. This book, Colossians in particular, is an embodiment of our vision as a church. All of Christ for all of life. Paul's going to spend a lot of time in this book and we're going to get there saying, you need to know who this Jesus really is. And then he's going to take that Jesus and he's going to apply that Jesus to the rest of life. So let's make some quick applications here this morning. What What do you take from this? First, first and foremost, Treat the Word of God as the Word of God. If Scripture is what it says it is, if these are the very words of God that are living and active and that have the power to change you from the inside out, treat it that way. Study it. Submit yourself to it. Conform your thinking, your choosing, and even your feeling to the standards of God's Word, not the other way around. Don't conform Scripture to what you think and to what you feel, 
but conform what you think and feel to Scripture. Don't explain away passages you just don't like. Second, affirm the sufficiency of Scripture. That in God's Word, as 2 Timothy 3 says, you have everything you need for life and godliness. God has not left you without what you need. You do not need contra-biblical worldviews to live well. You do not need contra-biblical worldviews to understand Scripture. In fact, those only sow the seeds of death. And finally, take the Word of God and use its power and take it out into the entire world. Use it to transform your family, your community, your occupation, but you must start with yourself. You must start with repenting and believing in your own mind, in your own heart. And knowing that the call to bring the gospel as far as the curse is found is guaranteed success because it is about Christ. And he has secured that inheritance in heaven for us. It all hinges upon who he is and what he has done. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you have spoken to us in your word and that in your word we have the power of God. Lord, may you take that power and transform us. Lord, may you impart faith where there is hard hearts here this morning. Lord, for our children who do not yet know you, some of them do, some of them not yet, may your spirit fall upon them as the word is preached in their homes and in their church that they might be born again. And Lord, may you bring your kingdom to this earth. May Christ come quickly and establish that eternal reign for all time. It's in that, or it's with that hope that we pray. Amen.